place to start this afternoon is um, to just uh, say what the gospel dynamic actually achieves in a person's life, according to the New Testament, and then to reflect a little bit upon it in sort of ultimate um, terms, and then uh, talk at the end just a little bit of theology. Um, Theology uh, is best done from the bottom up, not from the top down. Now, don't misunderstand. Our message is a message about God. I said yesterday that the problems we have are fundamentally psycho-emotional, but the solution is spiritual and um, theological. But nevertheless, for understanding the way God works, we almost always have to start with our feet on the ground first. Now, Luther said that the um, sermons of the day that he heard did not have their feet on the ground. They weren't primarily about actual reality. Sarah's quite brilliant talk this morning, this was a, this was a talk of the highest quality. That talk is something that few of us will ever hear as good a talk as she gave today. We'll hear good talks, and we've heard some excellent talks. Everyone here has. But that was probably in the, among the very finest talks that anyone could actually give, because it wasn't canned. It had a kind of organic reality, and it was thoroughly earthed in real-life experience. And so um, I want to talk just for a minute about the actual way the gospel um, works. And I want to talk about the, um, the uh, uh, terrible fate awaiting the old man, the non-evangelized dark continent of your human heart. And then I want to talk just a little bit about the, the number one issue that is preventing people from really making this a active. Our speaker downstairs just now said that the whole point is for practical, for the practical. And uh, he said that as far as he could understand, Mockingbird was about the practical. And I thought, well, isn't that a great way of putting it? Now, what the gospel says <coughs> is that um, when um, you uh, are um, loved in the manner uh, which we've been talking about, you inevitably want to love back. So your life becomes a kind of a, an expression of love in everything you do and in every aspect of your life. You begin to operate from love that um, then actually begins to look like the person you were supposed to be, but whom you could never actually become like, because your life was not operating from love, it was operating from need. And, and of course, who wants to be married to a very needy person? Well, we all are, but, but you, 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 don't, you don't want to be married to a very needy person, because you feel sucked dry, like the movie Life Force from the 1980s, a wonderful, ridiculous, brilliant sci-fi film about a nude female alien creature who sucks the life force 
from every male in London <laughs> until she meets the one male that she's been looking for, as David was talking about, and the uh, in St. Paul's Cathedral, and she departs to another planet. That's the kind of movie that has reality to it. Now, it's, it's like, it's not, now, now there are good movies like Dr. Shivago, you know, and Great Expectations, and then there are really good movies like Life Force. Because they're in touch with the truth. How many of you are desperate to suck the life out of somebody? And are? Or are having the life sucked from you? Even if it's a child whom you really, it's fine. But how many of you are aware of the obnoxious, fatal, elements of the chemistry of having the life sucked from you emotionally by another person. And you've obviously, by the way, you've put off a lot of people by your own neediness over the years. you put off people. Now, um, what the gospel does, I'm going to read it, then I'm going to explain it again intellectually and quote a poem about it, and then I'm going to really try to say why it's a little bit enigmatic and mysterious. And uh, the gospel is said absolutely to perfection in the book of Romans, chapter 6, 17 to 19, where St. Paul says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Well, this is the key phrase. I'm sure you heard it. You have become obedient from the heart. What do I want for my children? What do I want for my children? That they would become obedient from the heart to what is best for them. That their love would flow, that love from me would, for me would not be love because I have to love my father. Any of you have ever felt that you had to call your mom once a week on a Sunday afternoon or whatever it was? That was terrible. She knew it and you knew it. And finally, because it was, the, 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 the demand always exhausts you. So in your 20s, you call your mom once a week or in college. But in your 30s, you start calling her once every two weeks. And by the time you're in your 40s, you maybe call her once every month. And then it becomes so painful. There are people right here in this room that have gone through periods of not talking to their mother or father for seven or eight years. There are people right whom you know who, who the, the, the uh, sense of obligation has so exhausted you that you don't want anything to do with someone with whom you should have something to do, who has an ineluctable and inescapable connection to you that you would do anything to avoid. And so um, the, uh, what you want for somebody and for yourself, that, you would, that what you want to do and what you ought to do are the same thing. And that is paradise. It's paradise. Now I'm going to um, read a poem that I like that talks about this, just four lines. And then I'm going to say a little bit more about it um, before going on to the, uh, to the um, practical cost of the person who gets left behind in the transaction of the gospel, but who still lives in you. And the poem is by an English poet 
whose name was William Cooper, but he spelled it Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R, and he wrote a lot of hymns. Now, like so many interesting people in Christianity, there are almost no exceptions to this in this room. The genius, William Cooper, was um, a highly troubled man. He was subject to such fits of what they call in those days melancholia, which we would call manic depression, that he spent about five years in a mental institution. And it was only because a very loving uh, Church of England evangelical minister loved him very deeply in that period that he emerged out of it. And then he was loved by a man named John Newton, who we know is the author of Amazing Grace. And this man, William Cooper, who had an enormous gift, an enormous rhetorical gift, and a an profoundly heat-seeking need for that which the gospel offered, wrote many, many, many poems about the God, grace of God. And one of his most succinct <coughs> poems about the nature of the gospel is number 54 in what are called the Olney Hymns. And you can get this on the internet. And he um, wrote, uh, it's called Love Constraining to Obedience. Love forcing you to obedience. Not obedience forcing you to love, but love forcing you to obedience. And he, um, by the way, one of his poems was quoted in at least three or four Jane Austen movies. I mean, he, he's, he, he's all over the place, but they just never give him credit. Uh, I don't like um, Jane Austen movies. I regard them as chick flicks. And I, I simply won't go see them. And I have a, I'm married to a woman who is a chick, and obviously she loves those movies. I don't know if you've been in the embarrassing position of having to go with your wife or your girlfriend to movies that just make you want to gag me with a spoon. And so I've had to sit through every single Jane, and I realize that Jane Austen was a genius, by the way. I'm well aware, objectively speaking, that she was unbelievably acute and understood men and women, especially women, better than almost anybody in the 19th century. But I find movies that have to do, especially if they star Emma Thompson, I, I, would, rather, I would rather die. And whenever I say that, everybody's uncomfortable, because every man in the audience, 90% of them, agree with me, and drag to these horrible movies. Um, you know, but she doesn't want to go see the movies you want to see, right? I mean, I want to go see Life Force. <laughs> so, so um, but, but William Cooper, who actually is quoted uh, in a key scene in Sensing Sensibility with Emma Thompson, uh, this is how he ended his uh, poem called Love Constraining to Obedience. He said, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Now that's the key phrase, to change duty into choice. Now I'm just going to reflect with you for a minute or two about, um, that, that is the gospel. It is about... The, um, the uh, transition between the old man who is utterly consumed by the question of what you can do for me versus the uh, new man who is consumed with a heart which has so much love in it that it creates tremendous uh, connection 
with persons who share the deepest part of the human need, which is to have a connection with another person. Because I wasn't exaggerating yesterday when I said that, uh, as far as I can see, the fundamental need of a human being is to have a loving connection with another human being. That is certainly what the motivator is. I mean, even if we can say, and theologically, that's only an analogy to the relationship with God, which is eternal, which I fully accept. That's, in fact, what drives you. That has driven a tremendous number of the decisions that you've made, even if you haven't been fully aware of it. That you've been driven by the fundamental core need to establish a relationship of connection and understanding with another human being. And this is why when we talk about romantic love, we're not being Wagnerian or stupid or, or overly frothy. It is simply the fact that for 99% of human beings, it is in the romantic sector that the deepest need of human beings is at least putatively or hopefully or aspiringly achieved. And this is why people will do anything for love. And when I say, just think about yourself, there are, you have done anything for love. Um, and I've seen it panned out so often, it, it's almost disillusioning. Sarah was so brilliant today because she said, we're, we're talking about the way it actually is. The Bible describes reality. I'm understood by this duty into choice. Slave into a child. That helps me to see the few moments in my life when I've become fundamentally unselfish had to do when I felt utterly connected and loved by another human being. And they are, they are it's so powerful that, that it's like in a, in a whole other, another universe when it happens to you. And this is why the, that feeling of, of connection is, is the most powerful experience that human beings are able to have. And then everything becomes easy. Everything becomes easy. You can pass a test. You can learn how to fly. You can uh, uh, learn a foreign language. You, you can learn how to use the computer. Mm -hmm. uh, you can become conversant in, uh, in uh, uh, what's that a language, that Esperanto. You, you, can, you can become a, a sensitive to dress. You can understand about style. Uh, you can become a tremendous aficionado of a woman's shoes. You learn about Papagallo. You know about, you know, I mean, all the things. It'll like that. Everything will change. Now, that's what it means when he says changes um, uh, duty into choice. But notice, he says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. This is so profound that it's almost, what I've just told you is everything I know about the human condition and the gospel, that love changes duty into choice. It changes imperative into desire. That is all I know that needs to be said about the human condition. But even that, doesn't fully do justice to the whole mammoth interplanetary truth of God and the human being. And um, I want to go, in other words, one step further with it because um, I find that for many people, even when they actually understand the gospel, which is very rare, 
It, it's never among worldly people, except occasionally by analogy. And among Christians, it's, it's, it's alarmingly rare. I mean, I, 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 I say it when I was asked uh, by uh, Mrs. Anderson during the thing, why did she never encounter this yesterday? I don't know the answer. I know that I have gone to church after church after church after church in Fairfield County, Connecticut, or in New York City. And I've encountered quite a few bees Tons of C's and C minuses. You know, Tim Keller, there's some B's out there. They're B, but they're not A, because it's a temporary solution. It's helped me to a certain extent, but there's been something, some problem, some recidivistic, regressive issue in my life or other people's lives. It ha it's like it hasn't gone quite far enough to really deliver what it has promised. So that's why I said you meet a lot of people for whom Christianity or the gospel has worked a great deal of good, but it seems to have reached a kind of limit. And that's really where I want to take you to today a little bit about how can we carry this message. Who that song, uh, Matt McGill, take it to the limit. The eagle. The eagle. Well, hey. Yeah. You know, um, we used to say there's a church in um, Houston called St. Martin's Episcopal Church that is supposed to have 8,000 members, and we all, it's where Sarah is, and we knew that it actually only had 5,000, so the joke in the Diocese of Episcopalian uh, Houston was that um, it's like, uh, uh, St. Martin's is like the Hotel California in terms of membership. You can check in, but you can never check out. <laughs> in other words, they had 3,000 dead people on the rolls. No. So no, you always go with the Eagles. You'll never miss with the Eagles. Not with Fleetwood Mac. I'm disillusioned with Fleetwood Mac. I, I, I think their, their vision is limited. But anyway, um, journey, that's another story. Now, um, you understand what the gospel is. Now, um, it, it's this, the new being. You're in touch with the new being. This having been set free from sin and become slaves in righteousness. About five minutes. And at certain key moments in your experience, this is actually true, but the regression is constant. There are many times when you, all you need to do is get into a traffic accident, you know, and get mad, or be stopped by a policeman, or um, somebody says something mean to you, uh, or your husband, uh, you know, makes a crack, or your wife makes a critical comment, and you can just, like, light, light speed, you're back at the old self. And I just want to talk a little bit about the fate of the old self, and then I want to say how actually, how is it possible to really become the new being in a more steadfast way. Um, I'm thinking how to do this. I think I may, um, I may skip that point, and first, I don't want to talk about the fate of the old being. The old self has a terrible fate in store. The person that you're basically living with most of the time inside yourself is not, um, is doomed. Uh, he's not slated for much good. And uh, there's a great line in an Aldous Huxley novel. By the way, if you want to read um, Aldous Huxley's uh, mid-period novels, they are, they are beyond insightful. But um, in one of them, a, uh, a Nobel Prize winning brilliant um, a physicist in Chicago who's a bit of a philanderer and a dicey character who has a very long-suffering wife uh, never finds what he's looking for. 
even though he won a Nobel Prize in physics. And he dies. And the hero is asked by a, 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 asks a very wise man, well, what, what, what happened to Hugo after he died? And he said, well, actually, Hugo's probably currently under the bed of Dorothy, his former wife, and her new husband. He lives basically dead Hugo, lives under the bed of his former wife, long-suffering wife, and her new husband, and is sort of doomed to pitter-patter around invisibly in that bedroom, just gnashing his teeth. Uh, you know, that's fun, right? Um, and uh, uh, the, um, the, the part of you that is really hard to live with, you know, the high-maintenance side of you. You know, I think I told you that my wife and her friends in Birmingham, Alabama, had a weekly Bible study called Wives with Difficult Husbands. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I said, I'm, are we really more difficult than any other husbands? You know, I, we took that personally because they meant it. And they were, I mean, it's like this idea that they were all, and I would see these women at church and I would say, oh, she's been told by my wife that I'm really very, very high maintenance. And I didn't really like that very much. It turns out that it was more like women who have compassion on high maintenance husbands. But um, the. <laughs> The, the, the part of you that is uh, high maintenance, demanding, clinging, overly sensitive, uh, highly acquisitive, deeply controlling, hot, very fearful, strongly judgmental, petty, um, focused on completely unimportant things that loom very large to you, uh, the part of you that's a foodie, that's this, that, or the, or the part of me that's totally focused on, night, on life force, you know, there's no future to that person. There's no future to that person. He may be kind of eccentrically delightful. I certainly hope so, don't you? Don't you hope that someone will give an oration at your funeral that says, well, he was delightful and idiosyncratic, wasn't he? Ha, ha, ha. And he's upstate. You've been to these so-called celebrations of life, which is such a misnomer. And uh, you go to these celebrations of life and say, well, Paul is up there in heaven watching his DVDs of Attack of the Crab Monsters. And, you know, Roger Corman is with him and all these Edgar Allan Poe and the grand old time. And that's simply a falsehood. That Paul is actually under the bed of somebody uh, gnashing his teeth uh, and, uh, and not having a good time at all. The purpose of living is to get into touch with the new man created by this form of love that we've talked about. And to the extent that you're in touch with that part of yourself, you'll go to heaven. And all the rest of you will be uh, is somewhere around here. Uh, your mom, your dad, you know, if they're not having a good time. The new man is with God. The old man is not, in fact, skating around heaven. He's in hell. But it's a hell that is sort of basically a no-exit hotel room right around here. Um, and so um, the uh, power of the gospel is we are um, intended to connect with that part of us which is able to love the dutiful thing rather from choice rather than from mandate or imperative. Now, um, I want to say two other things and uh, we'll see where we go from there. Um, the whole power of a talk is that I'm, I'm prayerful here that what I'm saying might be connecting with an individual need that is in the room. I'm talking to an individual, I'm not talking to a group, and I don't even fully know what I'm going to say, although I have a lot I could say. 
been working on this for months, obviously, and you have too. But I'm, I'm trying to uh, let it sort of become something that is greater than the sum of its parts. Now, um, the fact of um, human existence is, um, it, I, I want to really try to talk something about that, that you may disagree with, but it's the, the sum of whatever pastoral wisdom I feel I can offer you today. And that is that almost everyone I know seems to uh, be very eager to be saved in relationship to the losses, the tragedies, the impasses, the confusions, the hurts of your life. Everyone I know is seeking to find salvation and relief from the terrible losses, hurts, disappointments, and tragic problems of life. There was a very holy Episcopal bishop, and they're not many, most of them are very worldly. But there was one once in where I grew up, he was about 90 when I was about 19, and he died, and it was a very big event in Washington, D.C. in the early 60s when the Bishop of Washington at the National Cathedral uh, died, and his last words, he was a buoyant, brilliant, fabulous chap, He'd been there like 25 years, he was a real part of official Washington, and his last words horrified all of Washington. They weren't vulgar or anything like that. He was this utterly sincere Christian. His last words were as follows. Life is tragic. Now they expected him to say something different. And of course he may have just lost, expired, having just about said, and I'm on a Mars bar, you know what I mean? <laughs> Trust the last words. By the way, when you get home, look up the last words of, of President James K. Polk. They are the most moving last words of any American president. James Polk, P-O-L-K. Look up his last words on YouTube. They are beyond powerful. But um, the um, the uh, issue that I find um, in myself and in others whom I try to be with pastorally is there are usually are one or two hurts that are unattended. And sometimes, there's, most cases, there's, not every case, of course, but in most cases, there's at least one hurt that is unattended. And because it's so hurtful, it, it is such a hurt inside the person, it is so deep-seated that you gave up long ago the hope that it could ever actually be attended to, healed, reassured, or cured. Now think just for a minute. If, if I were to ask you, if, if you can imagine such a place in your own history that has the quality of being so deeply rooted in your experience of life that you almost cannot imagine it being cured or helped. Now maybe the answer is I can't imagine one. I don't have one. But it's amazing how many do. Let me give you an example. What is the movie that is commonly regarded as the greatest Hollywood movie ever made? There's one movie that is common. No, I'm oh, what if I say the wrong one? You know, uh, I, I, it's a return. What is this one movie that is commonly regarded as the most famous Hollywood movie of all time? It's a talking game. Yes, who said that? Golly, that's the one. 1941. It did not win the Oscar. How Green Was My Valley won the Oscar, which is typical. The greatest minister in this room, whoever that is, will not get the job he or she ought to get. You won't. You ought to become the pastor of da 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 da. 
you won't get it. Citizen Kane, you'll get something else. Uh, but um, Citizen Kane did not win the Oscar. Now, Citizen Kane is brilliant because it unmasks the key dilemma of a human being's life. And I want you to think about it for a minute, and I want you to see that this is the issue What's standing in the way of you being a person who is a slave of righteousness, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed until and through the day of your earthly disillusion? In other words, giving you hope and confidence for the future. And I mean the future, the ultimate future. Something could be standing in the way, and it's usually a resentment or a hurt. In Citizen Kane, which you've seen, um, Orson Welles depicts a man who inherits at age nine millions and millions of dollars through the Comstock Lode, which is a great uh, ore of a mine in Colorado, isn't it? And he inherits at uh, age nine uh, the biggest fortune in the United States. And um, he is um, taken away from being a little boy uh, playing in the snow uh, in his mother's house somewhere in Michigan or Illinois or something into a life of unbelievable, what is today called privilege, prestige, and worldly appurtenances of, of beautiful things. And his name is Charles Foster Kane. However, what you, any insightful person seeing the first part of the movie realizes, the only important thing about citizen Charles Foster Kane's life is not that he inherited by some chance an enormous fortune, but that he was taken away from his mother at age eight. And what is the, the, the name of his sled that becomes the secret to his life? Rosebud. Rosebud. Thank you, Wendy. Um, uh, and Rosebud, and throughout the movie, this man who goes to Harvard and then he becomes the head of a very big newspaper and he has one great success after another after another, he is walking with a wound. He is walking with a wound through his entire life that he, he lost his mother. And he didn't understand why. He, he could, he, he, he was un, no one explained to him at his young age why this should happen to him. And it was just assumed by the world that he'd gone into this whole new wonderful life. And he, he finally becomes... Uh, uh, the first great crisis in his life occurs when he runs for governor of, of Illinois. But he has a girlfriend. And he met his girlfriend while going to unpack a box full of childhood mementos, including his sled. And that was the night he happened to meet his girlfriend. He's married to the daughter of the President of the United States. And uh, he and Chelsea. Uh, and he um, has, uh, 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 right in the middle of the movie, he suddenly realized, uh-oh, this man is actually unconsciously fixated on something that happened when he was a very tiny child. And he has an Achilles heel, and he is terribly scandalized when he loses the election. And he goes on to about age 70, and something is bugging this man. No one knows what it is. And when he dies, and all that his butler hears in this vast mansion, which is San Simeon, a beautiful place in California, because this is based on the life of William Randolph Hearst, who was a journalist, a very magnate. When he dies, he says, Rosebud. 
and a lawyer, a, a reporter tries to get to the bottom of it. He interviews everybody who's ever known this man. He goes from place to place to place trying to understand what made this man have this fatal flaw that should make him die, saying, Rosebud, and you never, he never finds out. It's a mystery. Now, you're a mystery. Each of us sitting here is a mystery. There's things about you that even your husband and wife doesn't know, because you don't know them. Someone said, um, uh, someone said, you know, I was, uh, I, I, someone said, I, this is, that I, I uh, oh, I know what it was. I said, you know, that guy can't preach. He doesn't know what he's preaching. He doesn't have any idea what he wants to preach. And, and my wife very perceptively said, because he doesn't know himself. How can you preach if you don't know yourself? Have you ever seen preachers who don't? The reason they're lousy preachers is they don't know who the heck they are. They're just going over this and that and the other thing. And um, Charles Foster Kane never finds out who he is because he is simply unable to see that he is entirely absorbed, his false self, in an appalling shortfall of love that has been a cancer and a poison throughout his entire life. So I guess I want to say to you that the um, great um, uh, power of, the, uh, um, of, of sin that prevents us from really living into this gospel message successfully for our whole lives is usually a mysterious element of loss or pain that you have perhaps unconsciously not been able to present to God. Now, it's not because you don't want to. It's not because you wouldn't do anything to do it. It's not because if you knew it was what it was, you would do it. But sometimes the pain of confronting something in your experience of life is simply beyond dealing with. It is too much. Now, fortunately, I, I, I think God understands this, but sometimes I'm unsure. Uh, my only deep, deep question about um, the gospel is, uh, I still have it as a pastor, why is it that somehow you have allowed people that I love and know and care for to not be able to do the archaeology in their lives to get to the core of the pain? Now, we have an old expression that you can write down or not or just think about it. It's um, that for many of us, our archaeology determines our teleology. Now, let me explain what that means. Teleology is a word from philosophy, which means where you're going. Where am I going? Remember God's spell? Where am I going? Won't you take me with you? Where are you going? I don't know. I don't know where I'm going. I'm just living day to day. You said so. I wish I did know where I'm going. Or, oh boy, do I know where I'm going. Not. You know what I mean? It turned out that I thought I was going to be doing this. But where am I, where am I now? Who in the world would have ever dreamed that I would be doing this with him when I thought just a few years ago that I would be doing that with her? It was obvious, and I'm not. So um, what happened was that your archaeology, the strata of experience, at the bottom of which was pain, because I'm going into the assumption that the core human experience is pain, or love blocked, that that... That deep, deep place, that scratum, way down there, was actually caused a kind of subsidence in the building that prevented a solid straight up and down, you know, 90 degree angle. So your archaeology 
determined your teleology. And the failure of the gospel is not really in the gospel, but it's in the, in the, um, the failure of, of somehow ourselves to be enabled to open up the very deepest stratum of our pain to God. Now, this is easy for me to say, right? It's easy for me to talk about it, right? I have it. I, I know this to be true, simply because I know myself. There are certain elements of pain inside my own history that are so deeply rooted that I cannot imagine life without them. Do you see, did you see Alien? Well, thank God, some of you did. But what happens is the, the, the face hugger uh, in, intrudes its horrible snout down into John Hurt. May he rest in peace. He died the other day. The John Hurt's lung and heart so that, so that the, the alien has intruded itself to the very heart of the man's bodily heart. And so whenever anybody, the doctor comes to try to saw off the alien or, you know, you know to, 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 to surgically remove the alien, what does the alien do? It, it grabs the heart as if to kill the man. So they know that if they try to remove the alien growth, they'll kill the man. Now that's what this is like. There's something inside you, possibly, that is so intransigently rooted in your conviction deep down of negativity and reactivity and pain that, that every time the gospel, let's imagine that, let's imagine Eric is preaching or Matt is preaching or Keith is preaching, every time it gets too close, you, you, you what is the word, a jam up, jelly tight? You know, and, and I understand that. I understand that. And that's why, for many people, the gospel only comes uh, truly uh, at the place of core uh, through AA or through some terrible, terrible, tragic circumstance where you have absolutely no choice. So I just want to say to you that the, um, that the core fact of, of human existence as a Christian, the core work that you and I I hate it when people say you and I. That you, uh, and that seems like I'm afraid I'm not sounding accusatory. I mean, this is not accusatory. This is descriptive. The core uh, fact of, of human uh, life, the core work of human life, is to find a, a, a non-defended way to go to the deepest stratum of the pain that you have experienced that has become part of your very organic life and expose that to the uh, unconditional uh, love of God, which is actually true, but which is like, it just, it just, it just closed, like a sphincter. It just closed, you know, it closed. And that, 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 is a, that makes life, do you understand that it's a catch-22? It's a terrible situation. Um, there's a song by um, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Webb, it is, I, 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 I'm deeply involved right now, chronically involved in the question. I used to think that Bob Dylan was the greatest <coughs> lyricist of American popular music, and certainly that sounds like a no-brainer, given the fact that he wasn't great, that he didn't go to the Nobel Prize thing. Isn't that the, I mean, what an independent soul he is. He ought to be here. I mean, imagine. Next year. Y'all get it. Um, but, but he'd rather be here than in Oslo. But, but he, um, I no longer believe, because I think he was, I think Bob Dylan is an incredible wordsmith, but some of it sounds more like an intriguing interest in words, like that movie The Arrival. 
I feel sometimes more he's, he's like playing brilliantly and inventively with words, with a great deal of insight. But when I, when I study the, the, the songs of Jimmy Webb, I don't see anything there that doesn't talk about me. Jimmy Webb's songs are about me. Bob Dylan's songs touch on me. But they don't hit me like an arrow. And he says that one of his uh, songs is called Almost All Right Again. And he's talking about a, a, a love affair in the past that he's determined to get over, and it's long ago, and he's gotten over it. And he said, I'm, uh, and he, he's living, I'm, you know, I have a new life, I have a new career, I have a new wife, or I have a new this, I have a new source of life. And then I see a picture of you, and I'm almost all right again. In other words, he's not all right. He's almost all right. He's partially all right. Or there's another song, David, what is the one you played me the other night about I'll never, that one about it's, I'll never get over or... Well, I forget too. I have it here in my my thing. But um, he he realizes that try as he might, there is one situation in his life that he cannot get over. Now, let's not just uh, apply that to love affairs or to past relationships. Let's just ask you that question in general terms: Is there something that you have not been able to get over? Something. Is there some issue? in your experience of life, that with all the best therapists, you know, I've been to a thousand therapists, like the woman with the issue of blood, right, in the Bible. She'd been to a million therapists, she'd been Jungian analysis, she tried, you know, she vega, you know, she food was the thing, maybe, or then she went to hypnosis, and then she went to had a colonoscopy, a colon, whatever that is, and she, and then, or she finally decided to become an intellectual, then feminism was the answer. I was with a, um, I was with a German feminist theologian, very famous feminist theologian, uh, uh, of the highest uh, note in European Protestantism, and um, she was dying in a hospital in Stuttgart, and she was a very famous person, and a, what's commonly called a feministische uh, theologe. And she was very famous, and I was with somebody else, and this is what she said to her great friend, who was another very famous feminist theologian, famous in quotes. And she said, what has feminist, she was dying of, of cancer, and she had a few days to live, and she said, auf Deutsch, and she said, what can feminist theology do for me now? I've timed that. A shocking... <laughs> but, but what I'm trying to say is, you, you can, you, it's not feminist theology. What does non-feminist theology do for me? What can complementarity do for me? What can Tim Keller do for me? What can Paul Zoll do for me? What can this do for me? Jimmy Webb, maybe. Yeah. But the, the, what can... I need something, and I'm not getting it. And the, the great issue of your life, in my opinion, existentially, pastorally, and ultimately spiritually, is to be enabled somehow, and I wish I could do it, to get to the great hurt, or what Bill Murray and Ghostbusters refer to, what did he call it? The big hurt? To get to the big hurt which you cannot get over. No matter how hard I try, I cannot get over this resentment I have against my father's second wife. No matter what I try, I cannot get over uh, this man who betrayed me at work. 
We knew a man in Birmingham who was extremely well placed in Birmingham. He was one of Birmingham's seven or eight most successful banking executives. And between, he'd been doing it for 30 years, he was at the height of his career, and between taking an elevator from the ground floor of this bank building near the church where I used to work to the 20th floor of the bank building, in that time it took from this elevator to go to that elevator, his entire life was destroyed by a betrayal involving a very highly placed banking owner and executive and a board. Within, within the amount of time it took from here to go to here, and this wonderful man, literally his entire life was shattered by a business betrayal in that much time. And uh, the last time I talked to him, he uh, was running a delivery business for delivering dry cleaning to uh, people, to their home addresses. Uh, now that is something of the highest magnitude. And if you can't take that in, in tide of the gospel, uh, then you'll be stuck on it forever. And I cannot sure I can tell you, and I'm going to end now, um, I'm not sure I can tell you how to, um, what the hope is, but this I will say. Um, I will say that, um, well, I was going to quote a verse in the Bible about the wages of sin is death. That's the guy underneath the, 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 the bed. That's the part of me that is a snob, or is angry, or is resentful, or is hurt, or is possessive, or is, uh, has a grievance, uh, that part of me uh, is not going to follow me. Uh, that's the wages of sin is death. But the, um, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the difference between the guy who's under the bed, who's uh, still, um, you know, like snidely whiplash, curses foiled again, that person, the difference between that person and the man who's the free gift of God in Christ Jesus is that fundamental need to confront the core pain of your experience with the um, message, the light of God. And what I have found is finding it is equivalent to healing it. That's the last thing I'll say. We used to think that if we nailed the problem, we still had to bring the seventh cavalry of the grace of God to the problem, which is true intellectually, but in practice, practically, the moment you actually say, this is my problem, you are about 75% there. Just saying it, because you've never said it. You know, I, I know married couples who will be, they'll go through uh, like 10 years of atrophying, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, impasse. 10 years. And, and they, they can spend literally 10 years, especially if they're raising small children, they can spend 10 years of never actually talking about the most important resentments and laid up grievances that one or the other has. And suddenly, after 10 years, after some cocktail party or after some taking your kid to college or something like that, it comes out. But, and, and it's enormously powerful and sometimes very dangerous. It can be a very dangerous time. But the, the power of bringing in whatever it is that is the deepest, unexamined place of pain, it's almost like 75% of the cure. Because God, in his mercy, always loves you in it. But that's the heart of what I wanted to say today. Thank you so much for giving me